0: Okay, so apparently last week I wasn't heard very well, so I want to make sure I'm loud enough this week. Am I loud enough? Yes? Okay. Although this thing feels like it's right in my face. Uh, Let me see. Okay, No? Okay, I think we're good. Good morning, everyone. Okay, good, great, wonderful. Good to be with you. As always, it's my privilege, my joy, to open God's Word with you. And uh, as has already been said, last week we started off a series on justification, and we'll be continuing with that today. We said last week that this is one of those truths that you absolutely must get right. There's a lot of things that you can be wrong about, and you can still be a Christian, you can still be right with God, you can still even be a healthy Christian. But this is not one of those truths. This is one of those truths that you absolutely must get right. Uh, Both so that you can be saved, so that you can no longer be God's enemy, but can actually be reconciled to Him and at peace with Him, uh, able to spend eternity with Him. But further, this is fuel. Fuel for the joy and peace and progress and fruitfulness in the Christian life. When we remember it and we live in light of it. It is no exaggeration to say that there is nothing more important than properly understanding this truth. Okay? There is is no exaggeration. There is nothing more important than properly understanding this truth, the truth of how it is that we can be justified before God, how it is that we can stand before God and have Him say, You are not guilty, you are righteous, and you are accepted by me. We started last week by looking at our need for justification And we started there for the same reason that Paul started there in Romans, and that is because you can't begin to understand the meaning of justification unless you first understand your need for it. See, justification is a solution to a problem, and you're you're always going to struggle to understand a solution and certainly to appreciate a solution unless you first understand the problem. And the problem, according to the Apostle Paul, we saw, is that God is a righteous and holy judge who must and always will punish sin. And none of us are able to stand before Him and have Him give us a not guilty or righteous verdict. Hear that again. We know that God is love. We know that God is forgiving. Those things are true. But it is also true that he is a holy and just judge who must and will punish sin. And as for us, we are all sinners. We are all guilty. We all deserve God's just punishment for our sins. Romans three ten to 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one romans three twenty three says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god paul says here clearly right every one of us is guilty every one and Hebrews 9.27 tells us it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Now all of this sounds like very bad news and it is, it is. If you are a human being here this morning, you are a sinner guilty before a holy and just God who must and will punish your sin and there's nothing you can do to save yourself nothing so that's the bad news but we're looking at the good news today we're looking at the good news today and this bad news uh, that we looked at last week in Romans 1 18, all the way through chapter 3 verse 20 though it's hard to hear It's an expression of God's kindness to us. And here's why. Because unless we realize that that the confidence we have is a false confidence, unless we realize that the ground that we think we're standing on is actually sinking sand, we will not look for the solution we need. We won't cry out for a savior unless we know we need one. And God has been kind to us through His law, in His Word, to make it clear to us, you are not righteous, you cannot save yourself, you need a Savior. That is what God is doing in this section of Scripture. It's like receiving a letter from the judge who will be trying your case. Imagine that. You're about... to to be tried in court, and the very judge who's going to be trying your case sends you a letter before you even get to trial. You've been diligently preparing your case, thinking of all the bad things you didn't do, thinking of all the good things you did do, all the religious things you did, and that your parents did, all the things that make you Uh, somebody who's respected, somebody who is successful in this world. So all the things that make you somebody who's generally looked up to, and you think, okay, I've got a good case here. But this letter from the judge makes very clear. If your own obedience and religious activity is the evidence you are going to bring to make your case, to try and be found not guilty, to try and be found righteous before me, don't do it. Don't make that case. It's not going to work. You are not righteous. And that case holds no water. And though, of course, that is hard to hear, right? It is a kindness for that judge to say to you, Don't go there. Don't make that case. You'll be wasting your time. You have a false confidence. Right? And that is a false confidence that would leave you, in fact, in great danger. And amazingly enough, this judge also goes one step further. He says, that case will not work. Those grounds to justify yourself will not work. But let me tell you about how you can be found innocent. How you can receive a not guilty verdict. How you can be justified. Let's read from Romans 3, verse 21. But now... through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to sh- Oh, sorry. We'll stop there. Stop there. Halfway through verse 25. That's our passage for this morning. But now is how it begins. But now. You've come to this point where Paul's shown you, you cannot stand on your own righteousness. You do not have your own righteousness. And that, that's a position where we might find ourselves despairing, feeling, okay, now, well then what now? What now? And Paul says, but now. Another kind of righteousness has been revealed. It's been, it's been manifested. It's been shown. God, the judge himself, has provided another way to be righteous in his eyes. And one of the things that makes the gospel beautiful is that it is so different than every other religion out there. Every other religion out there is teaching you things you can do, things you can try present to God as a way of appeasing him and turning away his wrath and being accepted by Him. Things you can try to do to fix up your performance record, to try and improve your CV. But the Gospel instead tells us that at a specific point in history, God Himself came to our rescue. He entered this world, He became man, He lived an absolutely perfect life, and He did it. So that He could give the perfect righteousness of His life to you. As the means by which we can stand before Him on Judgment Day. And be not just forgiven by Him, but fully accepted and pleasing to Him. To say it another way, basically there are two ways of trying to approach this issue of righteousness, trying to have a righteousness that you can present to the judge. Two ways. Option one, there's your own personal righteousness, the things you've done, the things you've accomplished. And we saw last week that that is never going to work. And then there's option two, an outside righteousness. Righteousness a righteousness that isn't based on anything you've done a righteousness that is not that is based instead on what someone else has done somebody else somebody else's accomplishments somebody else's good deeds somebody else's perfect obedience before god religion tells us lies it says I will help you stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness. But the gospel tells us the truth. It says, you are a sinner and you do not have righteousness, nor can you ever be righteous on your own. But I will tell you about an outside righteousness, a perfect righteousness that God himself will give you and guarantee This is actually part of what sparked the Reformation, which began 505 years ago, almost to the day, on October 31, 1517. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, and he desperately wanted to be right with God. So he did everything a good Catholic should. He tried to follow what the Church said about justification as passionately as he could. He confessed his sins, he chanted, he prayed, he fasted. But the more he did all that, the more he realized what a sinner he was. He wrote, I was indeed a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk could gain heaven through monkery, it should have been I. All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless and I could not depend on God being satisfied by my efforts. He despaired. How can I ever be righteous enough for a holy God? How can all these silly little do's and don'ts ever be enough to please a holy and righteous God? But then it dawned on him, as he studied the book of Romans, that when Paul is talking about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about God's righteousness as some standard we have to work hard to reach, but rather talking about a righteousness given to us from God, a righteousness that God gives freely by His grace to people who do not have a righteousness of their own. It's what Luther called an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness, meaning a righteousness from outside. It's not in you, it's outside you. It belongs properly actually to somebody else. Somebody else has earned it and acquired it achieved it and that somebody else is jesus christ it's his righteousness and he gives it to us luther said when i discovered that i was born again of the holy ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and i walked through that is what we will be looking at this morning five characteristics of this righteousness from god this alien righteousness that justifies sinners like you and me first paul says this righteousness is apart from the law it is apart from the law as paul's talking to these people who were thinking the means by which they could attain a right relationship with god was through their obedience to the law He's emphasizing here that the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel has nothing to do with their performance in keeping God's law. We are not accepted by God on the basis of our own personal ability to keep God's law. The righteousness that God gives you does have something to do with someone keeping the law. But it's not you. It's Jesus. Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been made known, apart from the law. He's not saying that the way God accepts people is that He suddenly decides, I'm going to forget my law and and just act as if it doesn't matter, as if God's standards suddenly just dissolve away and disappear. That's how a lot of people seem to think justification works. But of course, that would make God flaky and unjust. God does not accept you into heaven just because. It's important that we understand that. He has a law, and that law is good. His standards are absolutely right, and they have to be kept. Which means the only way for anyone to be accepted as righteous in God's sight is if God's law has been kept perfectly by someone. When Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law then, he's not saying that this righteousness has nothing to do with the law at all. But he's saying it is. this righteousness is not about our keeping the law. The righteousness revealed in the gospel is apart from the law, because it's apart from our own personal performance. It is based on someone else's righteousness, Jesus's righteousness. And Paul's emphasizing that because what happens once we understand the need to be justified and start seeing we are sinners and feeling conviction over our sin is that we get so easily attracted to religious talk that is basically Justification by works, or maybe justification by a combination of grace and works. It's just so natural for us to think that way. If you want to make up a religion that's going to be popular, make up a religion that focuses on what you have to do to save yourself. Thanks to our pride, sinners love any form of self-salvation. And because justification by works is so tempting, even as believers, who totally know we are not saved through our own performance, we have to be on guard because we can so easily slip into thinking and living like this, at least practically in our day-to-day lives. If you look at a lot of Christians, you'll see that they are constantly basing their confidence of acceptance by God on the basis of how well they are doing. Maybe not in the sense of, if you ask them, how are you saved, what are you saved by? But in terms of how they actually live their day-to-day life, how close they feel to God, how pleased they feel God is with them. Some people make the bar really low to help them feel better about how they are doing. And so if they go to church and they stay away from the big sins, then they feel pretty good about themselves, and they think, I'm fine with God, I'm doing well. And they're usually pretty self-righteous towards others, thinking they're quite a bit better than other people. And they're not that excited about the gospel either, because they don't really think they need it. right? It doesn't hit home to them, because they think they're doing quite well. Others, though, are almost the opposite. Their bar is really high. They're reading their Bibles every day, and they know that living for Jesus is about a lot more than just going to church. And they take note of all these sins in their own hearts that nobody else sees, and they beat themselves up. They feel like they're always failing, and they've got this constant guilt and self-pity and shame. They're never feeling like they're actually measuring up enough never feeling like God is actually happy with them. But the gospel, listen very carefully, the gospel reveals a righteousness that is much better than this. It shows us, as one author, Jerry Bridges puts it, our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us. Our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us. Nothing to do with us or our performance. It's past tense. It's finished. It secures God's favor. He is well pleased because of what Jesus has done for us or as Paul puts it here, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Right? Here is the beauty, the security of a righteousness that is mine apart from how well I do keeping God's law. How well I do obeying a righteousness that is finished and complete and perfect and always will be. Secondly, although this righteousness is apart from the keeping of the law, the law, or from my personal keeping of the law rather, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness. It might sound a bit like this means of justification is something totally new and unexpected. But it's important to realize it's not. Part of what makes the truthfulness of the Bible so compelling is that it tells one single story of God glorifying himself and saving sinners by his grace. The gospel we read in the New Testament reveals more clearly how God is going about justifying the ungodly, but it's based on what God's already taught us in the Old Testament. In other words, it's not that God has two methods of salvation. One He reveals in the Old Testament and one He reveals in the New. And then we must now choose between the two. No. It's actually that the justification of believers under the Old Testament is the same as the justification of believers in the New Testament. Right? There's a reason why... There's a sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament, right? Come, bring a spotless lamb. And then when Jesus comes into this world, what is said of him? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The whole Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system has been pointing forward to this one who will die to take away our sins. And Paul actually goes on in the book of Romans to show us this in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham, who is a a huge, central, key figure in God's great salvation plan. In Romans 4 verse 3, Paul says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that word counted is an important word. It means that righteousness was credited to Abraham's account. It was given into Abraham's account. It's not that Abraham believed and because of that he was somehow now enabled to be righteous enough, to do enough righteous things, to stand before God on the basis of his efforts. No, it's that Abraham believed and simply because he believed God gave him a righteousness. (coughs) He credited a righteousness to his account, just like he does with us. And that is why it's called a gift. A gift. In Romans 4 verse 4, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? I earned this. It's not a gift. I worked for it. I earned it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says that if Abraham worked for this righteousness, he would have earned it. But he didn't. Abraham, David, you, me, every other Old Testament believer, every New Testament believer, we are all justified the same way. We're justified apart from the law through faith. It is a gift. If the righteousness we present to God isn't by us keeping the law, we have to receive that righteousness some other way. And Paul says, We receive this righteousness through faith alone. That's the third point. We receive this righteousness through faith alone. If we go back to the analogy we were using earlier, you have two options when it comes to standing before God. Either you can show Him a righteousness you've earned through your obedience to the law, or you can show Him a righteousness that's been given to you through faith. Those are your only options. And those options are mutually exclusive. You cannot choose them both. Or, one, or all of this one and part of that one. If you are trusting in the one, you cannot trust in the other. It's like being on a ship that is sinking. And there's two possible lifeboats that you can get in. You have to choose. One lifeboat is called your righteousness and the other is the righteousness promised in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ. They're two different boats and you can't possibly be in both. By choosing to get in one boat you make the choice not to get in the other. And that is what happens when a person is truly converted. He gets out of the boat labeled my righteousness. And he goes and gets into the lifeboat labeled Christ's righteousness. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not just that he decides to get more religious or or be better. Unfortunately, I hear lots and lots of people talk like that. Right? Something's going wrong in their life. So they think okay it's time it's time to be a christian now i'm going to start going to church as if going to church is what will fix it all and make them a christian or i need to start tithing and giving offerings as if tithing and giving offerings is what makes you right with god now of course it's good to go to church and it's good to give money to support gospel ministry But that's not why you go to church, it's not why you give. Those things do not save you. They do not make you a Christian. Nor do other things like all night prayers or fasting or singing in the church choir. And the person who has truly become a Christian knows that. He knows the boat called my righteousness is not going to save him. You can put a lot of effort into trying to patch up that lifeboat and block the holes. It's still going to sink. It will not save you. You need to look completely out of yourself, outside of yourself, and what you can do. You need to look to Christ for the righteousness He provides for your salvation. You need to get in the lifeboat. Christ's righteousness. Remember a few weeks ago when we were in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about some reasons he might have chosen to trust in his own righteousness. He says, in fact, if anyone thinks he had reason to trust in, in, in themselves for acceptance by God, he had more. Almost sounds like Martin Luther, right? If anyone was going to be saved by monkery, it was me. Paul's like, if anyone was going to be saved by being a religious Jew, it was me. And yet whatever gain he had through all his religious heritage through all his religious activity he says he counted it as loss for the sake of christ he made a deliberate decision to not trust in himself or anything to do with himself but to put his full confidence in jesus sometimes when we think of becoming a christian And repenting, we think of repenting of all the bad things we've been doing. And and absolutely, we must. That is part of coming to saving faith. But Paul shows us here one step further. And that is that we must also repent of trusting, putting confidence in the good things we do. Because when you're trusting in the things you do, you're not trusting in Jesus. When you're relying on the good things you do, the religious deeds you've done, you're trying to be your own savior, and God has already provided us with a perfect one. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listen carefully. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You hear that? It's not a righteousness inside me. It's an alien righteousness outside of me that that comes to me from God and that I make my own through faith. It's faith alone that saves us. To think faith plus some things you do is what's necessary is actually damning. The difference between Catholics and us, between Muslims and us, between Mormons and us, between a lot of other religions and us is this understanding of faith alone. Because most people are willing to believe that faith is part of it, but they don't believe in faith alone. They want to contribute something themselves. They want to be their own savior on some level. And of course, right, it's not that works don't matter at all. That's not why we say faith alone. True faith is going to produce good works. Hear that. True faith is going to produce good works. But don't get the order wrong, right? True faith produces good works. We're not that 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 is the way it works. It is not faith plus good works makes me a Christian. Faith makes me a Christian. And if I if I have true saving faith, Now, as a Christian, I will produce the fruit of good works. The Bible says faith alone is the way that God has decided that we can receive the righteousness of Christ. As a gift, as a gift, don't slip into trying to earn it. It is 100% a gift. One way to think of this is that good works that you do in an effort to earn your salvation are actually sinful. They bring condemnation against you because God has said that faith alone is the way we will be saved. Faith faith alone is the way we receive the righteousness of the gospel. Some of you may have heard me use this illustration, but I'll use it here again. Remember, when Paul said in Philippians 3 that all these good works, all these achievements he'd done, that he, he, he wasn't going to trust in them because they were all rubbish, his point was not just that they, they wouldn't work, not just that they wouldn't be enough. Ooh, sorry about that. Um, his point was not was not just that they were not sufficient. His point was, if he had come to God and tried to offer good works to God as a means of salvation, it would have been if offensive to God. Okay, the word he uses is that they were rubbish, right? And we talked about. Uh, how how what, what's actually what the word's actually referring to is dung feces okay so it's not just that he offers God something worthless he offers some, something to God that would reek and stink and be offensive it'd be a, something along the lines of of if somebody this is that illustration I was talking of if if uh, somebody had murdered your mother And you're standing, you're sitting in the courtroom as this person is being tried for the murder of your mother. And then they walk up to you and they pull a ten rand out of their pocket and they say, "Here, let me give you this ten rand, and then we can we can call it even, right? We can call it even. Yes, I murdered your mother, but here's ten rand. That should settle it. Of course, that is." Incredibly offensive. And this, my friends, is what it is when we try to say to God, here's my good works, doesn't this settle it? We do not realize the gravity of our sin. We do not realize the sinfulness of our sin. We do not realize how much we have rebelled and spat in the face of our Creator a good and holy god who has given us every good gift every breath we breathe we are not accepted by god through works of the law but through faith in god's promise The Heidelberg Catechism asks, how are you righteous with God? And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to this. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me, gives to me, basically, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for me. If only I accept this gift, With a believing heart. Amazing. Amazing. Which leads us then to the fourth characteristic of the righteousness the gospel reveals. We've seen that it's apart from the law. It's revealed throughout the Old Testament. It's received through faith alone. And we receive this righteousness. This is the fourth point. We receive this righteousness. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And here's why this is important. As we've already said, right? Our tendency is to want to play some part in our salvation. To want to earn our salvation on some level. And so what we can do is we can even try and turn faith into a work. We can think, what saves you? Well how much faith do i need do i have enough faith is my faith strong enough is my faith stronger than yours and obviously it's not wrong to evaluate whether you really do have true saving faith the bible tells us to do that you must ask yourself do i believe that god is for me because of the work of christ and because of the work of christ alone You must ask yourself, do I trust that God will be faithful to His promises to save me even though I don't deserve it because of what Jesus has done? These are important questions. Don't slip though into thinking I will be saved because I'm so good at believing. You are saved because of what Jesus If it's saving faith that we are evaluating, you need to realize that saving faith won't let you look at it for very long. Saving faith is going to want us to look at Jesus, because that's the whole point of saving faith. The whole point of saving faith is to look outside of yourself to Christ, because it is Christ who is our righteousness. Listen carefully. Faith is not our righteousness. Jesus is. If we try to justify ourselves on the basis of how much we believe, we are actually trusting in ourselves, not in Jesus. Faith is just the instrument by which we embrace Christ. It's the life and death of Christ that justifies us. As B.B. Warfield once put it, The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves us. Listen carefully. But Christ that saves us through faith. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ who saves us through faith. Justification is an act in which God declares you righteous and not guilty. And the reason He does that, the reason He can do that, truthfully, honestly, justly, is because at a certain time in history, The penalty the Lord demanded for your sins and for my sins was paid for fully by Jesus. That happened at the cross. And at a certain point in time in history, the Son of God entered this world, became man, and lived his whole life doing absolutely everything God expected, fulfilling all righteousness. And that is the righteousness that is ours through faith. That's the foundation for justification that Paul explains in verse 24 and 25. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now. Redemption and propitiation are packed theological concepts that could easily take up their own sermons. But essentially what Paul is saying here is that there is a very real righteousness that is revealed or made known in the gospel. A real righteousness that comes from the perfect life Jesus lived and the death he died on the cross. God took every single last drop of His wrath against our sins and He poured it out on Jesus on the cross. That's what the word propitiation means. Jesus absorbed, received, fully satisfied the demands of God's wrath against our sin. He is our righteousness. Our faith is just the hand that receives the gift from God. Saving faith teaches you to look to Christ because it's Christ and his means and sorry and his work that is our means of acceptance before God. It's Christ and His work that justifies us. And saving faith teaches us to keep looking, keep hoping, keep banking everything on Him. Remember, if you are a believer, God never looks at you by yourself. He always looks at you in Jesus. When you've been looking into the mirror and are feeling discouraged, over sin, the gospel has you put down that mirror and pick up a photograph of a perfectly beautiful Savior who came to provide forgiveness for even the worst of sinners. And saving faith dares you to believe that. It teaches you to bank everything on God's goodness to those who come to Him in Jesus teaches you to believe that God wants you to believe He is for you 100% because of Christ. The righteousness God reveals in the Gospel, the righteousness that will enable you to stand before God, is forgiven and accepted. is apart from the law, it's revealed throughout the Scriptures, it's through faith alone in Christ and what He has done for us. And Lastly, it is available for all who believe. It is available for all who believe. Quoting Paul, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. There is only one way to be forgiven and accepted by God. And that one way is available to absolutely everyone. Think about that. Absolutely everyone. You may find yourself standing before the throne of God one day with a rapist by your side. With a mass murderer to your other side with a horrible racist behind you, right? I'm talking now prior to coming to faith in Christ. That may frustrate some of us. That might feel like it's not right on some level. Because, again, we really want to be able to stand before God on the basis of our efforts. We want to believe that if we're there, we're there because we're good on some level. We don't like the idea of murderers and rapists standing right next to us. As if we're in the, sa- in the same position as them. I know there are a lot of people who don't like what the Bible teaches about us being sinners. And our hearts can rebel against the idea that we can't earn our salvation. But listen carefully. We should love this truth. Not just because it's true, right? Not just because it's true that that we can't save ourselves, but because of the amazing assurance that this can give us of salvation. Here's what I mean. What kind of certainty could I have if my salvation was based on any level on me and my performance? If someone asked you, how can you be sure that God accepts you? And you're thinking, on any level, because I'm pretty good, or because I pray a lot, or because I'm I'm a better person than those people. You actually are going to have absolutely no certainty. Not... Not a constant, unshakable certainty. Not if you look at yourself accurately. Because who are you really before God? Who are you really before the almighty, holy God of the universe? As we look at God and how awesome and holy He is, as we look at His law and what He really demands, if we look honestly at ourselves, we should know very well that we've got nothing to offer. But here's the thing. That is all of us. It's all of us. It's the mass murderer, and it's the, most, uh, the, the kindest, most generous person you've ever met. All of us are in this position where we cannot stand before God on the basis of our own works. We have all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, and we all have only one hope, and that's what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone. Why should God bring you into His presence if you were to die today? Why should a holy God look at you and say, I approve? There's only one answer. is that He has declared you not guilty. He's forgiven you of all your sins. He's accepted you as perfectly righteous. Not because He's just forgotten about His law or changed His definition of righteousness. But because of the perfect work of Christ. Because He's promised you He would take Christ's perfect obedience and the price He paid on the cross. And apply them to your accounts when you simply believe. That's how justification works. We have no righteousness of our own. But God provides us a perfect righteousness. An alien righteousness from outside of us. And we are justified and found not guilty on the basis of that righteousness the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. This righteousness is apart from our keeping of the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. We receive this righteousness in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and this righteousness is available to all who believe. Where are you putting your trust for your justification? Please don't trust in your own righteousness. You have none. You will be found guilty. Trust instead in Christ's perfect righteousness made available to you as a gift. Amen.